Welcome to GabFest Reads, September edition. I'm John Dickerson. On this GabFest Reads, I talk with Ada Calhoun, a journalist and nonfiction author who set out to finish a biography of her favorite poet, Frank O'Hara, that Calhoun's father, the New Yorker art critic Peter Sheldahl, started decades ago. Instead, she wrote almost a poet, Frank O'Hara, My Father and Me, which is both an exploration of the O'Hara she finds in taped interviews that her father did and a reflection on her own fraught history with her celebrated father and the New York art world she grew up in and the one she learns about on those tapes. The book is out now from Grove Atlantic Press. Here's our conversation. So, Ada, we're going to start with basic questions. Who was Frank (laughs) O'Hara? Frank O'Hara was a beloved mid-century poet. He uh, was very much a part of the scene of painters and poets in um, downtown New York in uh, 1950s, 1960s. He was a central part of that scene, but then he also was untimely ripped from this earth. Tell us a little bit about his death. He died at 40 on Fire Island in a freak accident. He was hit by a dune buggy in the middle of the night. And of course, Fire Island is known for having no cars. So I think his is maybe the only vehicular death um, recorded uh, over there. And now tell us who your father is. Um, His name is Peter Sheldahl. He is the art critic for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, and he is a has always been a massive Frank O'Hara fan and moved to New York City in part to become as much like Frank O'Hara as possible. And why were you drawn to him? To my father or to Frank O'Hara? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was hoping that would work that way. Um, exactly. So tell tell uh, those who have not read, yet read the book, your father was writing um, a book about O'Hara. He did not complete it, and you picked up the task. And that's where we start the book, is you picking up your father's, um, your father's task of writing, uh, of writing this book. Why do you think your father was drawn to O'Hara? Well, my father grew up in the Midwest, and he was very creative and really wanted a cosmopolitan life. And he, um, he came across O'Hara's poetry in an anthology when he was at a very impressionable age in his uh, early 20s. And Frank O'Hara is so funny and he's he's so witty and there's something so appealing and available and accessible about him, um, something that really just uh, pulls you in and, um, and also something that makes New York City seem like the most glamorous and magical place on earth. So I think as soon as that happened, my father's path was clear. There's O'Hara and then there's the New York City that that was around him, the scene that was around him. At one point, your father says that O'Hara and John Ashbery, the, uh, another famous poet from this era and age, created a lifestyle for him. What did that, what does that mean exactly? Um, I mean, so it's both about art and also about the lifestyle of, of the village at that time. Yes? Yeah. So it was prioritizing truth and beauty and um, art over everything else. And I think especially coming out of the 1950s Midwest, that meant rejecting uh, a sort of conservative sensibility, a traditional sensibility, and not caring, uh, for example, about having a nice house, not caring about being respectable, not caring about making money. Um, And so the, the downtown scene of New York was 
full of people who were living in cold water flats in studios, um, staying up late, drinking and talking. And they were very happy with that life. In the book, you write, one reason why I liked the idea of this project was I'd get to think about cocktails and cigarettes, snow falling over Greenwich Village. So there is that scene. How much was that scene um, one of your imagination? And how much through the process of writing did that scene hold up or did it get um, or did it change as you started to pick up your father's project? I mean, having grown up in New York City in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I I knew that the periods of time in New York City history people are very nostalgic for are often much more complicated, right? Not everybody was friends with Patti Smith. Many people were just being <laughs> mugged in the park. Um, but I had this idea that maybe the 50s were different. I think um, because I didn't actually experience 50s and 60s firsthand, I, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe that actually was so exciting and so glamorous that even though I'm sure there's bad parts to it, it would it would have been really fun. Um, I still think it would have been pretty fun. However, there was a darkness there that I hadn't really anticipated. And in some of the interviews my father did, I I just heard this ugliness um, and this sort of disregard, especially for women, that I hadn't fully uh, counted on. And we should <clears throat> we should update people on the the process of the book, which is you take over your father's project and there are cassette tapes. Um, for those listening, these were these physical objects you used to put into a tape player. Um, and and so you were able to actually listen to your father interviewing these famous uh, poets, artists, and doing his job. You are also a writer. So you're essentially over his shoulder listening and watching him do this. What was that like? Um, well, it wasn't unfamiliar to me as a job. I've been a ghostwriter for the past 10 years, and um, and I'm often brought in as a fixer on difficult projects. And so I, you know, I thought, oh, like, I can knock this out. I've done 20 of these, right? My, my father didn't finish it, but there's a lot of books out there with you know, celebrity, um, celebrity authors that didn't get finished until I showed up. And, and here we go once again, coming to the rescue. And, uh, and then there I was with the tapes, listening to them throughout the uh, lockdown, actually. And my father is not like a natural interviewer. He would be the first to admit that. So the material that he was getting, it was frustrating to me because I thought I would have asked that question so differently. Why isn't he waiting to hear the response? He's just jumping in, giving his own opinion. He's not slowing down. He's interrupting stories. And so I became more and more frustrated um, with him. And so as you're listening to these tapes, there's one point where um, where you respond. I can't remember who's being interviewed, but at one point you just respond, these people are the worst. Oh, Grace Hardigan, yeah, talking about abandoning her son, and um, and you know, years later, she finds out that he has children, and one of them looks like her, and she's like, "Oh, I would like to meet the granddaughter." I'm like, what a monster, right? Just terrible, <laughs> terrible people. Right, and so did that, because um, part of what this book is about is it's changing trajectory. It feels like it changes a couple of times. One time, very uh, dramatically. Did you expect that, that that sense that these people are the worst or did that cause a kind of darkening of this material you had that you were shaping, trying to shape into a book? It snuck up on me. I thought it was going to be just a love fest. I mean, also, who doesn't love 
Frank O'Hara and surely anybody he loved and surrounded himself with would have been the most wonderful, the kindest, the the most uh, creative and delightful people to spend time with. And and as I spent time listening to these tapes, and I had to like listen to my, to my father um, as a as a young man trying to get information out of a lot of people who seemed very guarded. This is even ten years after Frank O'Hara's death. They were really concerned with their reputations. A lot of them. Um, and they were very eager to tell a specific kind of story. And then he was having trouble getting a better story. The, the whole thing just started to seem more and more fraught and less and less glamorous and fun. What do you think your father was looking for originally when he started the book? I think it was a great idea that he had. Um, I, I think he wanted to move into books potentially. He'd been, he was writing for the Village Voice. He was writing for the New York Times and various other places. It's it's a hard scrabble life, right? The, the the freelance art writer, and I think he he saw some security in writing books. He had a new baby. I think that was probably part of it, and he wanted to to make more people aware of, of Frank O'Hara and to to really cement his legacy in this way. And nobody nobody else had had done it yet, and he may be the first. And what? Why do you think he didn't complete the project? Well, I, I went in thinking he didn't complete the project because I thought he had made people mad. He was known for making people mad. He still makes people mad. He makes me mad sometimes. Um, and I thought, you know, of course, right? He uh, he offended somebody, and um, and then they they took permission away from him, and um, and that that sounds about right. Um, or you know, he just realized he was in over his head. This wasn't his his strong suit. He's a phenomenal critic. He's an incredible thinker. As a stylist, he's just uh, profound. But interviewing people, paying really close attention to what they have to say, organizing things like that that you need to do for a biography, um, I could see how he would have he would have not succeeded there. As you mentioned earlier, and as you write in the book, it it seems like as you were listening to him interview, it feels like you're saying, "Oh, right, now I see why he didn't he wasn't able to carry this off." Yeah, and you know, I always thought he was too hard on himself. He said, "Oh, I was a really bad interviewer," and I thought, "Oh no, I mean." Everybody says that, right? And like, you know, I'll listen to them at the tapes, and I'll find lots of good material on there because, because surely these people were eager to talk, and you got something. And there were tapes where I listened to them. I was like, oh no, no, he didn't get he didn't get anything from this person. You have the the darkening that takes place as you um, as your expectations about this scene and this era confront with the behavior of the people who were in it, and then you also come up upon another obstacle, which is that that Frank O'Hara's legacy, his poems, basically the whole bundle, is guarded over by his sister. Is that right? I mean, it's basically... That's right. She's the gatekeeper. She's the executor of the estate. So when he died in 1966, she was young. She was in her 20s. Um, she's now in her 80s. And so for the past um, 60 years, she has been in, in charge of who gets permission to quote from his material and um, what editions of his work come out and anything, anything like that. She acts as his representative on earth. And so if you're going to write a book about Frank O'Hara, you have to talk to his sister. Yeah. And, and I thought, of course, of course she'd want that. I mean, I ghostwritten a million bestsellers, like, you know, this was, this would have been great for everybody, right? Win, win, win. And I just anticipated us, you know, sitting on a porch drinking iced tea, laughing and laughing. And uh, and I was very surprised when that did not happen. This is also where you, you had thought your father's book broke down, which is that he ran afoul of her, made her angry, as you just des- described, made her angry. That's why it fell down. 
you would know how to get a slalom around the difficulties and the book project would get finished. So that obviously didn't happen. But it, it interests me because this tees up one of the larger, more fun parts of the book, which is what we left, what we leave behind, who gets to define that, and what's the truth of it? Um, so that's a lot. But so to ease our way into that, um, what is Maureen O'Hara's view of her brother's legacy and how it should be tended in the world after his death? So, you know, that's a question for her, really. She she didn't give me a ton of information about what, what got, guides her decision-making, but based on what she's given permission to and what she did say to me while I was working on the book, I gather that she wants his work to speak for itself. And there is, of course, a... a, a a long history of people saying biography is a bad idea, especially about writers. And I think she's in that camp. I think she thinks that that his legacy is fine and she doesn't particularly want anybody coming along, especially somebody who's not uh, an academic, you know, who's not tr- trained in poetry in any way, which is, which is true of me. Um, so c- coming along and saying what he means and telling her about that, I think, I think she wants people to come to his work and to make their own decisions. So she's the gatekeeper to the poems. The door is essentially closed to you. Then you're stuck with a situation. Did you, how bad, how dark did it get? Did you think when you were denied access to the poems, that's it, it's over, I've I've fallen the same way my father did, or what was your thinking? Yeah, I mean, that was my first, my first thought was, was there, there goes that. And, and I think I was so shocked. I really, um, I, I was really sure that she would just, she would just love me. She would think I was wonderful and she would love my book and she would think it was so cool. And, um, and so it was a real blow when that happened to not be the case in such a dramatic fashion. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I thought that was, it was all over and it, it took a little while for me to, to take what she'd said really seriously, which was, you know, she asked some actually great questions when we spoke and she, one of the questions was basically, why would you do this? You know, why would you, why would you do this? Why would you write about your father? Um, and I really had to answer that question. And once I started actually taking that question seriously and answering it, I wound up with a different book. Before we go down that road a little bit, your ability to win over uh, Maureen O'Hara is in part, it would seem to me, housed, as you've already said, in your uh, skill as a ghostwriter. That talent, what is required to help people understand this, you say that one of the things that's required is to to fall at least half in love with them, meaning the people that you're ghostwriting for. Describe that process a little bit and what's required emotionally as a writer in order to access the voice that you're going to have to write in, which is not exactly your own. It's, I think it's a little like people describe mediumship or channeling, where you get you get them in your head, right? You kind of live with them the same way when you're really crushed out on someone. You you can take their mannerisms sometimes, or you just think about them all day. And so it's a little bit like being possessed, I would say. It's a little bit like a crush, a little like being possessed, and a little like um, just being their second set of hands, like uh, you know, trying to do what they would do if they were obsessed with book structure and had a lot of time. Susan Orlean says that a piece of writing should not just surprise the reader, but also the writer. 
There are actual surprise. I mean, when you get the door closed to O'Hara's poetry, that's a surprise <laughs> to you, to the reader, to everything. But were there surprises that are out of that category that um, that uh, that happened while you were in the pro- this writing process? Yeah, no, I, I love that Susan Orlean quote because I think it's I think it's really true. And um, and when I write, I usually do it because I haven't figured something out, and it's a way to, you know, especially in reporting, right. Or like, or, or researching and then doing interviews is like trying to, to, to get information and try to tell a good story. And, um, so there are things that I, there's, there's the, the unknown knowns and the known knowns and all that. It's like, there are things I expect to find. Um, and in this case, I had a million surprises both in the research and then also in my life that I wound up incorporating. So as I was working on the book, all hell broke loose with my family uh, in a way that became kind of front and center for the toward the end of the book. So we've quoted Susan Orlean. You just quoted Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Joan <laughs> Didion. Uh, jo- <laughs> they're always quoted together, those two. Um, and Joan Didion said what you just said, which is, I don't know what I know until I write, right. or I write to know what I think. Yeah. Did you consciously, so you've talked about you were going to write this book that was going to both complete your brother's uh, work, draw you closer, but also beat him in a sense. But did you, that more intentional, explicit self-discovery, was that your a part of your original heading on this book? It clearly is, it's a part of the result of the book, but was it intentional when you started it out? No, I, I was planning to continue to be dutiful and to get along with everybody and to make no enemies and um, and to hit all my deadlines and and be teacher's pet uh, the way that had worked quite well for me, frankly, uh, up until that moment. When you were going back to the idea of being a, a ghostwriter, and um, there's a point at which your father on one of the tapes says, I'm starting to live with him, talking about O'Hara. Did you start to live with your, as your father becomes a part of, well, he's always a character in this, but more explicitly become someone you're writing about and thinking about did you start to do that start to live with him as a subject rather than as your father yeah I definitely did and and I um it's one of those things where I that he's always been the most difficult relationship in my life right he's like always been somebody that I just thought we never quite saw each other we never quite got along um and we're, we're relatively close and I was relatively close to both my parents um always but there was just something missing with him and I thought now's the time this is the moment uh that, that I'm gonna fix it I'm gonna I'm gonna really see him and and making him a character and making him a subject of the the book I think I thought would help right I can I can see him in a literary way and that will help me see him in a human way are they the same person or are they two different people? The person you knew and the person you've created in your head for the purpose of, of creating art around it or of creating a piece of writing around it? I don't think I'd ever really done very much writing about my life while I was living it, like in the actual day-to-day uh, moment of it. And this was a time when a lot of the book comes out of actually what happened that day with him um, and and what I saw and what we did together and what he said. And so I, I had the temptation many times to try to live in a way um, and to try to get him to talk in a way that would be better for the book. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and I'm, I'm upfront about that in, in the book, I think, where, you know, he, he, he got a, a cancer diagnosis while I was working on the book. Um, and I 
thought, oh, this is it. This is our moment. Okay. So deathbed scene, go, right? Like, you know, daughter, I have never seen you or whatever. I don't know, whatever. Like I was trying to, to give him a good death, a good ending, uh, you know, a good, good final, final moment. And he just steadfastly refused, right? He just like, he wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, so I had to find a different ending. Did you ever consciously interview yourself? In other words, as any writer, you're interrogating yourself and your ideas as you're writing and you're thinking about something. It's always a process in, in a way of self-interviewing. But you are also a character in this story. So you're both trying to render it and then also accurately depict and convey your your emotions and, and thoughts. Did you ever actually go that one more intentional step and, and interview yourself for the purposes of this the way you would have as a journalist? Oh, that's funny. No, I don't think I've ever done anything that quite that formal. But I definitely did try at various points when I when I got certain shocks, um, one with the permissions, you know, one with with my father's um, health problems, one with, you know, other crises that my family faced. um, I tried to to sort of look at what my motivations were with how I was acting and to try to um, to. Yeah, to try to try to see how things had changed. So, for example, when I realized I wasn't going to win by being a good girl, I had to say, like, is there any other way to be? <laughs> and that was yeah. that was a hard question for somebody who had um, for forty years really only only tried the one thing. At the outset of the book, you talk about doing honor to your father. What does that mean at the beginning, and what does it mean now? Well, at the beginning, I, I thought this would save him from what I saw as, as a, a sort of shameful episode, right? I thought to, to, to have a book like this, to get so far down the road and do all these interviews and, and not have anything come out of it seemed like a, an actual tragedy. Like it seemed really bad. And I found these tapes right before a lot of them would have been completely um, decomposed. Like, I, you know, a lot of them when I was, when I was taping them off and, and digitizing them, like snapped at yeah. the end, right? Like these, they were very, very fragile. So, um, so, and the idea that they would have just like rotted in the basement and nobody ever would have heard them or they would have, they um, would have been destroyed. I just, I thought that was so awful. And so I was going to save him from, from, from that fate. And that was what, what it started out being. By the end, I was really trying to redeem him as a, as a, as a human being, um, as a father, I was trying to, to, to see him and appreciate him and spend this time with him and take care of him and, um, and, and to do the book also. And so it became about, yeah, about, about having a relationship. I'm an only child. Um, and you know, he's now 80 and I thought like, this is our, this is our time to get it right. This is our time to like make peace. And so that you have, so you have this personal mission as two human beings. You are also creating a piece of work which requires artistic choices. Um, And you are also writing about a person who understands that in his bones because he writes about art and the choices we make. And you're also talking about O'Hara, whose legacy has been walled off to you by his sister, who has a view of what his legacy should be. So there's a lot bouncing around here, um, which is all uh, which is all connected. And so I wonder when you when you decided to when the book takes its turn and you're thinking about your father and conveying him in a way that's true to you, but then in a way is introducing him to people who don't know him. Were you intentional about saying I've got to put all the the 
complexity in here, all the 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 sadness, all of the times that he hurt you and also behaved in a way that, um, you know, people who, who don't even know you would feel angry on your behalf, that that creates a more real picture of him? Or was there any tension there with you saying, oh, I'll leave that out because it's, it's too mean or it's too, uh, it's too true? I think I hate books that pull their punches, right? Like if you're going to write a memoir, write a memoir, you know what I mean? Like who wants to read a book about how somebody was so like, they were just great. They were just great. You know, they were wonderful and uh, so lucky. Like no one wants to read that. And I don't want to write that. So I figured if I was going to do this book, I had to tell the truth. And uh, I also frankly did not think he would live to read it um, because he had a six month terminal diagnosis while I was working on the book. And, uh, and then he has now outlived his diagnosis by more than two years. So he's, um, I think he's maybe, is he three years past it now? And so I realized I would have to give it to him. And to his great credit, I gave it to him. And I was really scared that he wouldn't like it because he would think, you know, that it was too, it was too honest and too raw. And it did include too many of the times he'd hurt me. And, um, and I also sort of thought that he would, he would think I was wrong. And I was really amazed and, and incredibly grateful that he read it and he said it was all true. He said the book was beautiful. He said it uh, it relieved him of this sort of inchoate shame he'd always felt. And um, and I thought that that's the greatest compliment I could have. Not just from a father whose affirmation you write about in the book you wanted, but also as a piece of art. If you pull your punches, you haven't told a real thing and therefore any lessons anybody gets out of it are shallow. I think so. I mean, you know, you know these books, right? It's like, it's, it's like, what are we doing here? Right? Like, who are we trying to protect? And if somebody makes themselves like look so awesome and wonderful, and everybody's so awesome and wonderful, it's like, you know, it's not true. And it's so frustrating. I feel, I feel betrayed by books like that. And, uh, I, you know, because I go to, I go to, I go to books to feel less alone, right? I write to feel less alone. So if we're not having an honest conversation, I, it's just, it, it, it makes me mad. For you, was this a story that had to be told because you're a storyteller? Or did you objectively think this is a story that must be told about your father, about you? Well, so I, I thought that, that I was telling the, the one the one story about Frank O'Hara, and then this other story demanded to be told. And it, it, I felt like I was forced to tell it. it. It was one of these experiences, like I didn't actually feel like I was doing a lot of the conscious work of it. And I don't want to sound too like, you know, hooly bully woo woo about it, but but I, you know, I, I channeled the book. I mean, it really felt like it, it insisted on being written in that exact moment. And I just, I just did its bidding. You write about these, these moments of pain with your father. They are necessary because it offers as a, as an act of, of writing, you have to offer the whole picture, but they also make this conclusion you come to more hard won and therefore more real when you say your disinterest has been one of the saddest parts of my childhood and the greatest gift of my life. Is that the great conclusion you came to at the end of this? Um, is that where you, is that the, the happy ending you wrung out of this process, which was not the same happy ending you were shooting for at the start? <laughs> yeah, that's the happy ending. That, the happy ending was basically... <laughs> You know, he he gave me he gave me some things um, like you know fandom uh, in the New York Mets and uh, how you know he taught me how to do a score 
Um, he taught me how to touch type when I was very, I was like, you know, four, five, six years old. And like, I learned how to type on an IBM Selectric properly. He did that for me. Um, you know, he, he, he filled the house with books. Like, you know, there, there are a lot of things that he did that are great gifts. And then I think even the things he didn't do, the things that, that, um, that were not great that I wouldn't have chosen were a gift. I don't know that I, I have had the life I, that life I've had, which I'm extremely grateful for. Uh, without his negative example and without his disinterest, because I did work very hard to be interesting and he didn't notice, but other people did. And, um, and I have a great life. So I, you know, I thank him for that. And also I think it's a happy ending that he liked the book. And I know he liked the book because he wouldn't have said that just because I was his daughter. He said, the book is honest. He said, the book is a great work of art. And, um, and, and that's what it, it would have to be for me to like it. And, uh, and if it, if it had been too friendly, he would have known it wasn't true. And, um, and I don't think he would have liked it. Do honor without lying. Hmm. Ada, thank you. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. And thanks for the book. Oh, thank you very much. It was really fun to talk to you. That's it for this month's edition of GabFest Reads. This episode was produced by Shana Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We'll be back next month with David's conversation with Tom Parada on his new book, Tracy Flick Can't Win, a sequel to Election. And of course, we'll be in your feed this Thursday for our regular weekly episode of The Political Gap Fest. <laughs>